Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Appreciate everybody's prayers. We've had a rather difficult week. Uh, Our friend we thought was getting better, but now he skipped the healing process and uh, went straight to completely better. He's with Yeshua, and uh, that's the good part. The bad part is we don't get to see him until we see him with Yeshua, which actually is something that I want to talk about, part of what I want to talk about today. So the title of this message is Friends, Romans, Countrymen, Ha'azinu. But before the message, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, um, some of the things that I'm going to be presenting in this message are a little bit complicated. Please take the spirit of what I'm saying. Uh, I'm encouraged by some of the things I'm sharing with you, but if you have any questions, you can take them up with me or with Rabbi David. Uh, so uh, hopefully they won't be especially controversial. I have actually sat with David and shared many of these thoughts with him. And uh, I think we're, we're pretty, uh, pretty good there. It was the morning of Yom Kippur. As the conservative congregation was filing into the sanctuary, Rabbi Feldman noticed little Max standing in the foyer of the synagogue, staring up at a large plaque. It was covered with names with small American flags mounted on either side of it. The six-year-old had been staring at the plaque for some time, so the rabbi walked up, stood beside the little boy, and said quietly, Shana Tova, Max. Shana Tova, Rabbi Feldman, he replied, still focused on the plaque. Rabbi Feldman, what is this? He said, pointing to the plaque. The good rabbi tenderly put his arm around Max's shoulder and said, well, son, it's a memorial to all the young men and women who died in the service. Soberly, they just stood together, staring at the large plaque. Finally, little Max, in a voice barely audible and trembling with fear, asked, which service, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? (laughs) Or maybe this one, I don't know, could be. All right, so how many recognize this quote? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. You should probably recognize, you've heard it before. 
It's the first line of a speech from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, in which Mark Antony stands up to speak after the death of Caesar, who had just been murdered by Brutus. The speech is a tongue-in-cheek speech, meaning that he says he has come to bury Caesar, not to praise him, and then he goes on to do exactly the opposite. He praises him. So this is, in a way, a lead-in to the Torah portion today. Hashem gave a song to Moses, a song that he was to teach the people of Israel as a testimony against themselves. For the time would come, as we heard earlier today from Elder Eric, that the people would depart from the God of Israel and worship false gods, the nations of the nations where they would soon live. The portion hazinu means give ear. It means the same thing as that line from Shakespeare, lend me your ears. It means listen to my warning against what will inevitably become your idolatry. He's talking here about judgment. I am going to be talking today a little bit about judgment. And as we come to the close of our Torah cycle, as Rabbi David mentioned, I am remembering something that our then soon-to-be and now Rabbi David said about a year ago. He said he wanted to focus this year on 1 Peter 3.15. Treat the Messiah as holy, as Lord in your hearts, while remaining always ready to give a reasoned answer to anyone who asks you to explain the hope that you have in you, yet with humility and fear. Today, I want to share my reason, the reason for the hope that is in me. If I could sum it up in one line from Scripture, it would be Romans 11.33. I bet you weren't expecting me to say that. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Notice the peculiar way of speaking about judgments as unsearchable and somehow desirable. I'll add one other from Romans 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The goodness of God leads you 
to repentance, which presumably removes us from God's judgment. Both of these passages speak about God's judgment, but there are many misconceptions about his judgment, and there are different ways of thinking about judgment. We think of the person who goes before a judge, and the judge rules about his actions, whatever charges there are, the issues. He issues a sentence to punish him for his actions. But this is only one kind of judgment. Scripture also speaks of another kind of judgment. In Isaiah 26, verses 8 and 9, we read, Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early, for when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. When the Lord judges, the world learns righteousness. The prophet is speaking of a, a deep desire for the Lord's judgments, a longing for the time of judgment. Here it might be better to think of the word as meaning the same as justice. It's a related word, but with better connotations. It's a very big topic in the world today, fighting for justice, pursuing justice, social justice, justice for society. It's something that we, as Yeshua faithful people, should know something about. When I say that we should know something about this idea of judgment, I'm not just speaking for myself. There's a somewhat challenging passage. I'm going to be reading a few challenging passages today. It's a challenging passage in Hebrews about this from Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 12 and going through chapter 6, verse 2. It's challenging because he challenges the people that he's writing to. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, and this begins chapter 6, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Messiah let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms or immersions, of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The expectation 
imputed to the reader is that he should be already able to teach these elementary principles of Messiah, and the author doesn't attempt to explain them here. Rather, he presses to go on to perfection, and that's a whole separate teaching, which you can read about by the verses following the ones I just read. These principles are presented in pairs. Repentance from dead works is completed by faith toward God. Baptisms or immersions, one of the first acts of a clear conscience, which we heard about earlier from our young David, a clear conscience of the believer, is matched with laying on of hands or smicha, which we also recently experienced with Rabbi David, which entails laboring in the community of the faithful. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment seem to apply primarily to a future age, but something that we are supposed to know about. And I'm going to be focusing the remainder of my message on this last pair, resurrection and judgment. First of all, I want to say that resurrection is a Jewish doctrine, not just a Christian doctrine. The Jewish scholar Maimonides, known as the Rambam, once took it upon himself to lay out some statements of faith that were to help Jews to know what we believe about our faith. One of those statements says, the Almighty will revive the dead because of his abundant kindness. Blessed forever is his praised name. If that's not enough, even before the Rambam, in the Amidah prayer, Three or four times a day it's prayed. We read in the Atagibor prayer, which we read this morning. You are mighty forever, Adonai, giving life to the dead. You are great to deliver us. This is definitely part of the hope that is in me. The hope of resurrection. Paul expressed this very thought in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. But there's an ominous concern because in Hebrews 9, which we've been reading a lot lately with Yom Kippur and all, Hebrews 9, 26 through 28, discussing Yeshua's sacrifice and his return, says, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. He will appear for salvation. The ominous part is that after the resurrection is the judgment. There's an old one-liner 
that says everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. You've probably heard that. We might say here, everyone wants to live again after death, but who wants to face the judgment? There it is. And yet if we think of judgment as justice, it means that those who die and go into the judgment will receive exactly what they deserve. For some, there will be a certain expectation of chastisement or punishment of some form. But for others, it will mean vindication and restitution. But to whom do these words apply and what will it look like? Many teachers tell us that the day of judgment is a literal 24-hour day in which everyone will stand before Yeshua and either go to the left or to the right, <clears throat> destruction or reward, based on how they treated people in their lives. By everyone, we mean those who are raised from the dead, which is everyone. That's what the scriptures teach, everyone. Revelation 20 speaks of two resurrections, Verses 4 and 5 speak of the first, what they call the first resurrection. He says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgments, judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Yeshua and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. I believe the first resurrection is for those who are truly born again, both Jews and non-Jews, obviously. The book of Revelation is a book filled with symbolism. I believe those described as beheaded were beheaded in the sense that they no longer lean on their own understanding, but they have died to self and embraced the headship of Yeshua. In other words, they've removed their head and replaced it with Yeshua. Yeshua has become their head. Now, I'm not going to be speaking here about the mark of the beast. That's another teaching. But moving on in Revelations 20, verses 12 and 13 say, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Here we see dead people standing. I have a sixth sense about this. Some of you were a little slow, but that's all right. You caught up in the end. In what sense are these people dead if they are standing before God? What does it mean to be judged 
if you're already dead. Perhaps they were dead, but here they are, clearly able to stand before God and to receive whatever judgment is due to them based on their works. I know these two questions are hanging, but I need to dig the well a little bit deeper. I want to give you two more curious things to think about with regard to resurrection. In Hebrews 11, we read about men and women who had great faith from earlier days. We read of Abel, Enoch, Noah, the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, David, and Samuel. We read of those who were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Do you remember reading that when you read that verse? That they might obtain a better resurrection. So there must be a good resurrection in order for there to be a better resurrection. You can't have something that is better unless there's something that is already good. <clears throat> we continue to read of trials, of mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment, being stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, wandering in the deserts and the mountains and in the dens and in caves in the earth. Verse 38 says that these faithful ones were those of whom the world was not worthy. And then verses 39 and 40 say something that challenges every single one of us here. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. How are we supposed to think of this comparison between these men and women of faith and us? The world was not worthy of them, but they did not receive the promise. And we, who are evidently less deserving, speaking for myself, have received the promise of life and immortality. Why? And the second curious thing is something that Yeshua said to the people of Capernaum. In Matthew 11, 20 through 24, you might have skipped over this one too, but think about it. He began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, 
will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So there is evidently a resurrection and a judgment for Tyr, Sidon, and Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as for Capernaum. And the judgment is tolerable, and apparently more tolerable for some than for others. How is this possible? If judgment only means that some are going to the left and some are going to the right. So I've raised a lot of questions, right? And now I want to give a little bit of a key that I think might help. It's found in two places. One is in Psalms, Psalm 90, verses 3 and 4. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. Does that sound familiar? It should because in Second Peter 3, 8 and 9, we read, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Earlier I quoted Revelation concerning those who would rule and reign with Messiah for 1,000 years. What do we think is happening during that 1,000 year period? Who is there? We know that those who participated in the first resurrection are there ruling and reigning, but over whom? Will we be ruling and reigning? The first resurrection consists of those who are ruling and reigning. They have received immortality. Why do I say that? Because over them, the second death has no power. The second death being the lake of fire, reserved for the very end. The others who are raised in Revelation 20, the dead, who don't live until the end of the thousand years are apparently alive in some sense, but not with immortality. They still have to face some kind of a judgment which could result in that lake of fire. So in this sense, they are dead because they're living under a conditional existence pending their judgment. How long does it take to look into the book of life, examine the deeds of those who weren't eagerly awaiting the Messiah and sentence them to a lake of fire? Apparently, it takes a thousand years. Isaiah speaks about that day in chapter 65, verses 17 through 20. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, 
and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die only after a hundred years of age. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Isaiah speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I want to say something. Contrary to the imagination of Hal Lindsey, how many remember reading The Late Great Planet Earth? I did. It was one of the first books I was given after becoming a believer about how the planet will be destroyed. Do you remember it said the planet would be destroyed and replaced by a brand new heavens and earth? But these things are not referring to the destruction of the land. There's other verses that show that the land will endure in Jeremiah chapter 31 and elsewhere. But not reading those scriptures, this planet will be renewed, but it will be under new management. So a new heavens and a new earth means it'll be renewed under new management. For now, evil, right now, evil has authority to go about seeking whom it may devour. But then Satan will be bound up and cast into an abyss where he will remain until the thousand years are over. Something else is different. No more infant mortality. A child will have a hundred years to grow up and determine whether he qualifies to continue living or to die. A sinner will have a hundred years to turn his life around. Here's another clue. In Acts 3, verses 19 through 21, Peter was explaining the miracle of healing the lame man. He says, repent therefore and be changed, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Yeshua the Messiah, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. The times of restoration of all things are the times that come with the coming of Yeshua, the Messiah. In Luke 19, 9 through 10, Yeshua spoke about Zacchaeus, the tax collector. All the people were complaining that he was going to the guest to be the guest of a man who was clearly a sinner. Today, salvation has come to this house, Yeshua said, because he also is a son of Abraham, meaning that he has the same kind of faith as Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus' testimony was that he gave half of all his goods to the poor, and if he had taken anything from anyone based on a false accusation, he restored it to them fourfold. There's a parallel between what Zacchaeus was doing and what 
Yeshua promises us. Zacchaeus was restoring what had been lost, both to the poor and to those who had been cheated. Like Zacchaeus, Yeshua will come and restore all things. He comes to seek and save that which was lost. But what was lost? What was lost? In Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a promise of life. All they had to do in order to continue to live was to avoid the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had what could be called conditional existence. They rejected that offer. They chose the knowledge of good and evil. They lost their conditional existence and entered into a death sentence. The same death sentence that hangs over the heads of every soul that has come into existence since that time. In Adam, all die because we have lost the conditional existence that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. In the thousand year reign of Messiah, the Garden of Eden conditional life that was lost is now restored. Yeshua came to seek and save that which was lost. And this means that that conditional life will be available once again to those who are raised from the dead. The condition being that they live in subjection to the King, King Yeshua. When Revelation talks about the dead who didn't live again until the thousand years were ended, it's referring to those who have been awakened from death and who still haven't received the promise of eternal life since they must be they must persevere in living and loving Yeshua and obeying his commandments some people say that this is a doctrine of second chance ism if we don't accept the good news now we'll have another chance in the age to come in the thousand year day of judgment but I don't think that's true I know that some people have had hundreds of chances some people have had heard the words preached because they couldn't get to the radio or the TV fast enough to change channels while the preacher was preaching so they accidentally heard the word. Or they've seen billboards declaring that Jesus is the way. Or they've seen John 3.16 on signs in the crowd at ball games. Haven't they had their chance? I don't know if any of those chances were accompanied by a genuine witness of the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of Yeshua, with the realization of the salvation offer that God was extending. Because we need that. I believe that everyone has had or will have a due time to receive the testimony. In 1 Timothy 2, we read that there is one God and one man, Yeshua, the Messiah, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time the ransom is for all and the testimony is also for all 
When is that due time? I believe that everyone will have that chance, an opportunity to understand it and to respond to it. Not a second chance, but one good chance. And this is my hope. No one will perish without having had a thorough witness of the one mediator between God and man, the man Messiah Yeshua. Even if someone dies, there is some level of hope. Otherwise, what do you do with all the people who never heard the one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved? What do you do with those infants who don't know that one name, who died before they even had the ability to know anything? What do you do with people who have limited mental capacity to comprehend what this message means and to take responsibility for their own salvation? What, what do you do with the people who rejected the testimony of the Cossacks during the pogroms in Russia, where they came with a sword and impaled a baby and held it up and said, except that you receive Jesus, you will not only die like this, but you will die forever. If you accepted that Jesus, I don't know what kind of a person you are. Did those people die without having received a testimony of Jesus, of Yeshua? What do you say of those who perished in the Holocaust just for being Jews? Did they have a testimony of who Yeshua is? Who is going to say that they are now roasting in the fires of eternal destruction? Who? I think God had a better idea. Oh, the depths, the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Knowing the goodness of God, that he has made a time for everyone to receive the testimony, that we will one day see again our loved ones who have passed away, perhaps not having made an overt acceptance of the gift of salvation, knowing that Jewish ancestors who perished in the Holocaust just for having the name of God on them will be able to see the face of the King of Israel and receive vindication, knowing that there is hope, then the goodness of God impels us to repentance. And we, who before that time have received him by faith, know that we will go in with hopefulness, knowing that we'll have immortality, but also that many others will have some hope for a future. And may we all say, Amen. Thank you, Rabbi David.